Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, December 23rd, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, Radical New Therapy for Parkinson's will use stem cell transplants from The Guardian. And Why Do Women Gain Belly Fat in Midlife from The New York Times. Plus, Potatoes and Beans Reduced Insulin Resistance and Weight in a Study from MD Edge and Medscape. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Radical new therapy for Parkinson's will use stem cell transplants. Lab-grown nerve cells will replace those destroyed by disease. Scientists hope treatment may be available in five years. By Robin McKee from The Guardian. Early next year, a radical new treatment for Parkinson's disease involving tissue transplants will receive its first trial with patients, including a group from the U.K. Stem cells grown in the laboratory and transformed into nerve cells will be used to replace those destroyed by the disease. It is hoped that these will stop the spread of debilitating symptoms. It has taken a long time to get to this stage, but hopefully results from these trials will mean that, in a few years, we might be able to offer tissue transplants as standard treatments for Parkinson's, said Professor Roger Barker of Cambridge University. It is certainly a promising approach, he said. In the U.K., about 145,000 people live with Parkinson's and about 18,000 new cases are diagnosed every year. The disease is triggered when nerve cells that supply dopamine to the brain start to die due to a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Dopamine helps a person control movement. When supplies drop, the result is shaking, stiffness, depression, and other symptoms that can end up with patients using a wheelchair or being bedridden. The disease's progress can be slowed by the drug L-DOPA, which replaces some of the lost function of dopamine cells. Treatments become less effective over the years. Scientists have been searching for years for new approaches. One idea has been to replace dying dopamine cells with unaffected versions, which has been tried by several centers across the world. This initially involved using tissue from aborted fetuses that had been donated for medical research. Fetal tissue contains dopamine-making cells that can supply the missing chemical, although at least six or seven fetuses are needed to provide sufficient material for one patient. In trials in Europe, these cells were injected into patients' brains with encouraging results. Other trials in the U.S. found such treatments far less effective, however. The use of tissue from aborted fetuses was opposed by many on religious grounds. It was also hard to source sufficient supplies for widely used treatments. However, Barker and his team at Cambridge, working in collaboration with scientists led by Professor Malin Parmer at Lund University in Sweden, have developed a technology that avoids these problems. The new approach uses stem cells, from which all cells with specialized functions are generated in the human body. These stem cells can be grown in laboratory cultures. Even better, scientists have learned how to transform them into dopamine cells. These will form the core of the transplants that will be carried out next month. 
We now know that putting dopamine cells in the brain will work, and the procedure is safe, said Barker. There is no longer a problem about supply of sufficient tissue because we can manufacture these cells in large numbers in the laboratory. The cost is relatively low. A supply of dopamine cells made out of stem cells has become standardized product, and we don't have any contaminating cells which you can get with fetal tissue. That means that we are now at a point where we can use stem cell transplants as treatments for Parkinson's patients, though it will take several years before we will know that these work and can be used as standard treatments for Parkinson's disease, he said. The trials will begin in the next few months and will continue over the next year. There will be four participants from Sweden and four participants from the UK. The cells are in a freezer and ready to go in, said Barker. The transplants will be done in Sweden because they have the instruments to carry this out. This will be followed up over the year with further trials, he said. Scientists expect that their trials will take at least two years to complete. They will be followed by careful scrutiny of the results and of any side effects. Provided that these proceed satisfactorily, tissue transplants could be ready for wider use in about five years. Younger patients will benefit most from this therapy, said Barker. It is going to be a one-off treatment so that the complications that you get with chronic medications will not arise, while those advanced therapies involving deep brain stimulation will not be needed so often, he said. Up next, why do women gain belly fat in midlife? And is there any way to target it through diet or exercise? This is in Q&A format. It's by Allison Callahan from the New York Times. Question. I'm a woman in my late 40s, and for the first time, I've developed belly fat. Is there any way to target it through diet or exercise? Answer. If you're a middle-aged woman and you're noticing that your midsection is expanding, the first thing to know is that you're not alone. This is a physiological change that, unfortunately, really happens to virtually all women as we age, said Victoria Vieira Potter, an associate professor of nutrition and exercise physiology at the University of Missouri. It's not something you did, she added, or an indication that you're letting yourself go, so to speak. In the years leading up to menopause, Dr. Vieira Potter said, levels of hormones like estrogen shift. And research suggests that these shifts likely lead to changes in body shape, she said, along with hot flashes, mood changes, irregular periods, trouble sleeping, and more. This perimenopausal transition, which typically begins between 45 and 55 and lasts for about seven years, officially ends one year after the last period. At that point, women are said to be in menopause. Before the menopausal transition, women tend to store more of their body fat in the thighs and hips, resulting in a pear-shaped body, Dr. Vieira Potter explained, while men tend to store more fat in the abdominal area, making them more apple-shaped, she said. But around menopause, there's a striking change in where women store fat on their bodies, said Dr. Gail Greendale, a professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. In one 2021 study, for instance, Dr. Greendale and her colleagues tracked how the bodies of 380 middle-aged women in Boston and Los Angeles changed over 12 years, including the time before 
during, and after their transitions to menopause. While the results varied according to race and ethnicity, the overall outcome was that around menopause, the women started storing fat more like men, less around the thighs and hips, and more around their midsections. For example, among the white and black women in the study, there was no net change in their hip and thigh fat over the 12 years, but their midsection fat increased on average by 24 and 17 percent, respectively. They gained midsection fat most quickly during the few years before and one year after their final period. In other words, Dr. Vieira Potter said, women start to adopt that apple shape instead of the pear shape. It's also common for men to gain more fat in their midsections as they age, but it is a slower and steadier change. There's no analogous thing in men where an organ just goes, later, and shuts down, Dr. Greendale said, referring to women's ovaries during menopause. According to Dr. Greendale, researchers don't know exactly why these shifts in fat storage occur. But while normal, they are something to keep an eye on, she added. Increases in belly fat, and in particular, the type of visceral fat that sits deep inside the abdomen and surrounds the organs, have been linked to certain increased health risks like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. This fat, which can expand not only with menopause, but with stress, lack of exercise, poor diet, and more, is the troublemaker fat, Dr. Greendale said. On the other hand, fat stored in the thighs and hips, creating the so-called pear shape, seems to protect against diabetes and heart disease. Despite the ubiquitous Internet ads claiming to hold the secret to shrinking belly fat, experts really don't know how to address the waistline expansion associated with menopause, Dr. Greendale said. Researchers are only just beginning to understand how and why the body changes in this life stage, and she's careful not to promote a solution without evidence that it works. What worries me is that women who are trying to do right by themselves and keep up their exercise habits and eat a good diet may feel defeated if their belly fat doesn't budge, she said. They may be doing everything they can, and their central fat may just have a mind of its own, she said. Excessive dieting and exercising too much can also be harmful, she pointed out. That said, getting at least 2.5 to 5 hours of moderate physical activity per week has been shown to help prevent heart disease and diabetes, both conditions associated with increased abdominal fat. Following a healthy diet, including one that incorporates plenty of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, and that prioritizes fish, legumes, nuts, low-fat dairy, and lean meats as sources of protein, can help protect against these conditions, too. Physical activity also helps to maintain healthy muscle and bone mass and improves insulin functioning, Dr. Vieira Potter said. Even if you're exercising and not losing weight, you're doing lots of good metabolically, she said. Exercise feels good, too, and might help counter some of the mood changes that can come with menopause. It doesn't need to be intense or strenuous to be beneficial, Dr. Vieira Potter said. Just find something you love, she said. And if you're still feeling discouraged by your changing body, despite a good diet and exercise program, Dr. Greendale recommended a dose of self-compassion. If my middle is resistant, I'm going to understand that may be part of the life stage I'm in, she said. Up next... 
both potatoes and beans reduced insulin resistance and weight in a controlled study, by Heidi Splitt from Medscape. Low energy density diets that are based either on potatoes or beans similarly reduced insulin resistance in adults with poor blood glucose control, according to a controlled feeding study in 36 individuals. Potatoes have gotten a bad rap for their high glycemic index, but they have little fat and a low energy density, wrote the study investigators. In fact, cooling of gelatinized potatoes generates appreciable levels of slowly digestive starch, resistant starch type three, and substantially lowers the blood glucose response that potatoes elicit. They wrote. There is a view that potatoes are a less healthy plant food, but there is very little empirical data from randomized trials to support this view. Senior investigator John P. Kerwin, Ph.D., said in an interview, "Dry beans and peas, known as pulses, also contain resistant starch that improves insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance. And multiple studies support pulses as part of a low glycemic diet to improve glucose control in adults." The researchers explained, but because the density of food often guides how much people eat, they hypothesized that potatoes could substitute for beans and provide similar glucose control benefits. In a study published in the Journal of Medicinal Food, the researchers randomized 36 adults aged 18 to 60 years with insulin resistance to eight weeks of a low energy density diet, one kilocalorie per gram. High in either potatoes or beans, the controlled diet consisted of 50 to 55 percent carbohydrates, 30 to 35 percent fats, and 15 to 20 percent protein. Each meal in the potato group included a side of potatoes, and each meal in the bean group included a side of beans. The primary outcome was the mean change in blood glucose concentration. The researchers also assessed weight loss. Overall compliance with both diets was roughly 88 percent. Body weight reductions were similar in both groups. BMI at baseline was higher, and the reduction in response to the treatment was significantly greater in the potato diet compared with the bean diet. The researchers noted the effect on blood glucose response was not significantly different between the two groups or from baseline. They said the findings were limited by several factors, including the small size. Relatively short study period and controlled nature of the study diet, the researchers noted. The addition of a typical Western diet would have enhanced our understanding of the effect of low-energy, dense diets on metabolic outcomes. They noted in their discussion. However, both diets led to a reduction in body weight, and the low-energy density of both potato and bean diets promoted weight loss without affecting appetite or requiring calorie restriction. The researchers explained. Therefore, this weight loss, if sustained over time, could have a substantial impact on body weight. They said. The take-home message for clinicians is that, though small, the study was very well controlled. Kerwin emphasized, clinicians ought to consider the health benefits of the potato when it is cooked and served appropriately. He said, looking ahead, larger randomized controlled trials with additional control arms, longer time of at least 12 weeks, and different patient populations are needed. Kerwin noted. Up next. Good habits that might age you prematurely. When does something healthy become unhealthy? 
when you do it too much to the exclusion of other good choices. Here are five good-for-you habits that could ultimately hurt you. By Leslie Goldman from AARP Magazine. Like most of us, you've probably been hit over the head for the past few years with the power of habits, the idea that locking in some simple, healthy, everyday behaviors will set you on a course for greater well-being. And there's a lot of truth to that conventional wisdom, but even healthy habits can benefit from a shakeup. When you take the same handful of ostensibly positive actions day in and day out, it often means you're missing out on a variety of options and activities that could offer a wider array of benefits. We asked experts in medicine, nutrition, exercise, and more about the healthy habits they wish people would take breaks from, especially those who want to stay in tip-top shape as they graduate from their 50s, 60s, and 70s. The number one habit: you stay out of the sun. Why it's not as good as you think? Your circadian rhythms are like a clock that keeps nearly every organ and system on a 24-hour cycle. Its strongest signal: sunlight, which tells you to start the day, cues your body to feel awake and energized, and regulates appetite, mood, and more. As the sun sets, your circadian clock releases sleep-promoting hormones. Among sleep's benefits, it cleans your brain of toxic byproducts that build up during the day, says Sarah Mednick, a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. But people in their fifties and early sixties spend less than an hour a day, on average, in sunlight. Do this: at minimum, go outside every morning for fifteen to thirty minutes, then again in the late afternoon or evening. Can't get out. Try fifteen to thirty minutes in front of a light box at a consistent time early in the morning. Habit number two: You eat so-called nutrition bars. Why it's not as good as you think? Nutrition or energy bars may sound healthy, but many of them are covert sugar bombs that pose as health foods, says Rajani Kada, M.D., author of Glow: The Dermatologist's Guide to a Whole Foods Younger Skin Diet. Prepackaged fruit juices and smoothies, and healthy breakfast cereals are also high on the list. Many foods that carry a healthy halo can deliver more sugar than a person should eat in an entire day. Excess sugar levels have also been linked to high blood pressure and heart disease. And yes, even the best nutrition bars are still processed foods. Do this: look at the label and add up the grams of protein and fiber. If the total is higher than grams of total sugar, your bar is probably healthy. Say the authors of AARP's "The Whole Body Reset." Habit number three: You drink when you're thirsty. Why it's not as good as you think? By the time you feel thirsty, you are probably already dehydrated. Plus, our internal mechanisms for triggering thirst become less sensitive as we age. About seventy percent of adults between ages fifty-one and seventy may be chronically underhydrated, says San Francisco area nutrition epidemiologist Jody Stuckey. Chronic dehydration can increase our risk for urinary tract infections and may even increase the risk of diabetes as well as colon and bladder cancer, says New York City-based integrative internist Dana G. Cohen, M.D. Another issue: If we lose muscle as we age, we lose some ability to store water.
do this. Drink enough water so that you need to urinate every two to three hours during the day, or eat water. Plants are loaded with it, and their fiber helps keep water inside the body for longer periods. Habit number four: You walk every day for exercise. Why it's not as good as you think? Walking is great. It helps maintain strength in your heart, brain, and joints. But with age, people often ditch other workouts because they fear injuries or worry that they're too old to run or lift weights, says Claire Morrow, a senior physical therapist with Hinge Health in San Francisco. As you get older, you lose muscle mass and joint mobility at a faster rate, unless you strength train. Without strength training, the average person loses three to eight percent of their muscle mass per decade after age thirty. The rate steepens after sixty. Over sixty-five, work on your balance. Try walking backwards, for example, three times a week. Do this: get at least one hundred fifty minutes a week of moderate exercise, brisk walking, water aerobics, or seventy-five minutes of robust cardio, jogging, or swimming. And at least two days a week of muscle-building activities. Habit number five: You constantly wear supportive shoes. Why it's not as good as you think? Arthritis can make it hard to take off shoes, but wearing shoes all day deprives our feet of a chance to work. Our toes need to push into the ground to maintain balance, and our foot muscles contract to maintain balance and posture, says Emily Spicall. A functional podiatrist in Chandler, Arizona, supportive shoes and insoles do most of the work instead of the feet, and thick soles rob the bottom of our feet of crucial sensory stimulation. Nerves send info back and forth to the brain, helping you keep good posture, stay balanced, and avoid falling. The more you wear shoes, the less your brain practices those skills. Plus, the nerves in our feet start to lose sensitivity in our forties, requiring more stimulation for the same response. Do this: go barefoot at least thirty minutes a day, particularly when cleaning and cooking, since your movements are more varied. You're on your toes, bending, lifting, and so on. Three anti-aging snacks: nosh your way younger with this trio of workhorse snacks. Almonds. They contain loads of vitamin E, an antioxidant that protects cells from damage. That helps explain why people who eat nuts every day live longer than those who don't. Berries. Whether they're blue, red, or black, berries are loaded with natural jewel-toned pigments called anthocyanins, which are packed with memory-enriching compounds. Greek yogurt. This common staple of the Mediterranean diet offers calcium for strong bones, protein to support muscle, and probiotics that nourish the gut microbiome to help with healthy aging. Up next, hip fractures in vegetarians from the week. Vegetarian women are much more likely to break a hip in old age than those who eat meat or fish, reports the Times of the UK. In a study of 27,000 women ages 35 to 69, researchers at the University of Leeds found that as the women grew older, the vegetarians were 33% more likely to break their hips than their meat-eating peers. Pescatarians, though, who eat fish but not meat, 
were no more likely to fracture their hips than carnivores. Over the course of the 20-year study, about 3% of the women developed hip fractures at an average age of 83. One explanation for this disparity is that vegetarians may eat fewer nutrients linked with muscle and bone health. That can lead to lower muscle mass and bone density, which increases vulnerability to injury. The vegetarians in the study also tended to have a lower average body mass index, which is linked to a higher risk of fracture. Yet the solution isn't to abandon vegetarian diets, says lead author James Webster. As with any diet, it is important to understand personal circumstances and what nutrients are needed for a balanced, healthy lifestyle, he said. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.